The following is a presentation of Dating Kinky. Kinky connections and kinky education. We're kinky done differently. What women and other wonderful humans want. A frank and fun discussion about the way people approach each other for romance, relationships, friendships, or other partnerships that make us happy, as well as an intimate discussion about how to connect with our own authentic self, with questions asked by a guy. And now, here is your host, John, or as we call him around here, hi there, catsuit. Hi there, Nookie. Today on the show, we meet an author, educator, and alternative lifestyles coach who has really defined what it means to be an educator. He is a superstar of the highest magnitude when it comes to teaching classes all over the country and all over the internet. Devin Stone is a self-awareness and BDSM educator, author, and alternative lifestyles coach. He dreams of globetrotting and helping folks achieve the connections they desire while they learn themselves more deeply. He believes in diversity, not division, and actualizes that idea by promoting strongly affirming spaces and interactions. Devin has a passion for giving and receiving education. His favorite topics are psychology, negotiation, consent, relationship construction, and organization. His quick reference books covered affirming gender, creating protocol, negotiating authority in relationships, and more. He is the founder of Pragmatically Kinking, where members discuss the practical aspects of BDSM and Thrive, a virtual conference dedicated to the intersection of mental health and BDSM. Devin's been actively practicing authority transfer dynamics since 2004. Today, he lives in Colorado Springs with his property, Zhang Wan, who is unquestionably devoted to his will. Devin is an extrovert, a Sons of Anarchy fan, and a foodie. Now, we go one-on-one with Devin Stone on what women and other wonderful humans want. It's five questions about memorable firsts. We call it the first five. First time you ever participated in a leather event and your reactions to it. Ooh. Ah, the first time I ever participated in a leather event um, was probably a house party. Um, I think that was probably my, my first foray into the leather community was a private house party. A local leather family used to put together um, on like kind of random Saturdays or Fridays, they would put together a, a guest list of folks that they wanted to come over and hang out. Um, and I happened to be friends with somebody that was prospecting in the family. So I got, I wound up on the guest list somehow. Um, and I was, 
uh, I was pretty confused. Um, I think just like walking around. Um, I had been participating on my own in private um, in owner property and master slave dynamics for quite a while, but it, I, I had never met other people in real time that were doing what I was doing. Um, and the party was um, kind of, I kind of figured out later that that was not what my leather was going to look like. Mm -hmm. um, but at the time, I just thought like, that's how all leather people do the thing. I, that's how all leather parties are. Um, so I kind of walked in and there was porn going on every television screen in the entire house. Um, there were naked people everywhere. Um, there were, you know, if you walked up the stairs, you could see all the dungeon furniture um, and people playing on the dungeon furniture. But in the main rooms of the house, in like the living room and the dining room, there were people having sex. Um, there were um, people being used as footstools. There were outside on the patio, there were people cutting and lighting cigars and handing them to people. Um, there were people walking around with food trays and drink trays. It was just kind of this like smorgasbord of like all of these things happening at once. Um, and the conversations were so vastly different. Um, I had never been to a place where you could walk into one room and hear somebody talking about like the history of, you know, World War II and like talking about the bombing at Pearl Harbor. And then, you know, three or four conversations over in the room, you hear somebody talking about the finer points of fisting, like <laughs> yeah. blown away with all of the things that people were discussing and enjoying about each other. You know, there were people engaging in like sex acts. There were people like hitting each other with things. There were people like massaging people. And so it was just this like vast array of like human behavior. And I was just fascinated, um, but I'm pretty sex averse. Mm -hmm. So as I was like walking around, I was like, I don't really, I'm not super into this party, <laughs> um, you know, and it, it was one of the, you know, I had been in swingers clubs before. Um, so it was one of the first like times I had been around sex where I wasn't immediately assumed to be involved. Mm -hmm. Um, I started going to swingers clubs weirdly enough to try to get my husband interested in uh, polyamory <laughs> at the time and um, thought, you know, if I could just show him that he could have sex with multiple people, maybe he would be interested. Um, but and, and in, in swingers clubs, my experience was like, I would walk into a room and somebody would grab me and they would be like, hey, let's do a thing. And I would be like, ah, <laughs> no, 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 I'm not here for that. And they'd be like, come on, let's go do some stuff. And I'd be like, no, 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 no. And then they would be like, okay, fine, we'll leave you alone. Um, but when I was at this party, there was like almost every person that I saw was either having sex or had just finished having sex or was preparing to have sex. And for, for no length of time at any point during that party, did I ever feel like I had to participate? Um, mm -hmm. Nobody touched me physically. Um, nobody specifically approached me. Um, I had a couple of people I was hanging out with, with my friend that brought me. And so I was kind of clung onto his arm and nobody talked to me at all. Nobody approached me. Nobody touched me. I, I wasn't assumed to be involved in anything. So I felt, you know, even though I was really uncomfortable with the sex acts that were happening around me, I wasn't feeling like I was uncomfortable. You know, I, I didn't have that personal feeling of uncomfortable. It's kind of that like, this really isn't my vibe. 
but like, I guess this is fine. Um, Cause you know, nobody assumed that I wanted to be involved in anything. And that was the first time that somebody explained that in the kink and leather community, we assume a no when we're looking at interactions. Whereas in the Spanko or the swinger scene, we assume a yes. You know, we assume that you're here to quote party. Um, but at kink and leather events, like most people assume you're you're there because you want to be there. They don't assume anything else about, you know, your intention to go to the party. And I think that was one of the reasons that I stuck around. Let me flip the script for question two. Oh. First time you walked into a leather event and said, this is home. I don't know if you could consider it walking in because it was in the middle of a conference. So I had been there for like I don't know, 40 hours or something. Um, at the time, um, I was serving as a cigar submissive and I was at a cigar social, kind of the like early evening-ish um, when the sun was still up. And, you know, so we weren't, you know, not everybody was in full swing of the party. There were a couple of people doing things. Most people were just hanging out, chatting. Um, but one of the cigar tops that I bottomed for that I served on a regular basis um, had, I guess he was a little bit more than halfway through his cigar and he had an ash on his cigar and he kind of looked over at me and we made eye contact and he gave me the nod, <laughs> which is to say, get your ass over here. And I said, yes, sir. And came across the, the, the patio toward him. And he was a very, he was a very sensual top. Um, and he had this way about him that was very, he took a long time to drop an ash in my chest. There, there were many other people that would just grab me and pull my shirt out and drop the ash and walk away. But he, he had this like, we have to have a moment together. Um, and so he kind of stayed there for a few minutes. Um, and, and he liked to like tease and torture and stuff. So he was tracing a cigar across my chest and out of nowhere, like right in the middle of this, um, I'm kind of like waiting and having this anticipation of him dropping the cherry because I know it's gonna happen at some point. Um, but he's like doing the teasing and the erotic, like sensual take. I don't do those things. So it's not like really doing anything for me. I'm just kind of standing there like a pole. Um, <laughs> and then out of nowhere, I feel this like searing, burning pain out of nowhere. And it's very unfamiliar to my body. Um, I, at that point had been doing cigar service and bottoming for cigar play for a little over two years but that was a sensation that my body was not familiar with. And so I was very concerned about what was happening. So I opened my eyes and I looked down and there was a very small piece of cherry that was basically like stuck to the underlining of my bra. And it was burning through my bra into my flesh. And it was not cigar ash. And so I looked over and I realized right at the moment that I realized I was, I was being burned and like the thing was stuck. And so it was burning into my flesh. And so I started panicking and I looked over and realized 
that the top that was playing with me was yelling at somebody um, because what had apparently happened was she walked around the corner and saw him putting ash in my chest. So she thought I was a community ashtray. Um, so she put her cigarette in my chest and just like dropped it in my shirt. Um, and so I was burning and couldn't figure out like how to stop it. Um, cause I guess there was a piece from the cherry that was stuck in my, like in between my bra and my skin mm -hmm. and the rest of the cigarette was somewhere. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was just like burning and trying to stop the burning. Um, trying to figure out like, where is this piece that I'm missing? Cause it's still on fire. Um, and then I started noticing like little holes in my shirt were happening and I was like, okay, clearly I'm missing it somewhere. And like, maybe it's stuck in my waistband now. And so I was trying to find it. Mm -hmm. I was panicked. Um, I also was pretty knee deep in my trauma back in those days. Um, so I was very small and had a really hard time sticking up for myself. Um, and I was really upset um, but my upset was coming out more as like sadness than it was anger or frustration. So I really just, I, I ended up once I finally figured out where the cigarette was and I got it to fall out of my shirt and get rid of it. Um, and I stopped burning, you know, there's this big patch of like burned skin mm. and I can't even take care of it. Cause I'm just hyperventilating and panicking and scream crying, um, and having a whole mental meltdown. Um, when I go and like basically try to crawl under a bench to try to hide mm -hmm. and I'm just like scream crying in this little fetal position and I looked up at one point and one of my friends was sitting on the bench and he looked at me and saw me in this like super panicked state and grabbed onto my face grabbed my chin and said I need you to look around I know you're freaking out I know stuff is like, you know, hit, hit the, hit the fan and, and all the things, but like, I, I need you to just take a look around the space right now. And so I, you know, I, I kind of protested a little bit, <laughs> like, I don't want to look around. I'm panicking. I don't like this situation. Um, and he said, again, I need you to look around. And so when I turned, I saw a handful of people that were standing right next to me with like bottles of water and blankets and two people with a first aid kit. Um, I looked over a little further than those people and saw the top that was playing with me, yelling at the person that burned me. Um, then we found out that that person was a submissive. And so there were three dominants that were yelling at her D-type when he came out on the patio. Wow. Um, there were two or three people kind of educating the people that were witnessing the whole thing kind of showing them like, okay, so what's happened here? <laughs> mm -hmm. This person did not consent to being burned. That person burned that person. And so these people are yelling at that person and kind of like explaining the situation. And then there are two or three people just on standby, hanging out on the sidelines, like asking if there's anything that I need. They're asking me if I need a hug, if I need a blanket, if I need a Band-Aid, if I need ice, if I need a water, you know, can we get you candy? Do you like, what do you need to feel better? Um, and I, I kind of looked around this room and I had never in my entire existence, I had never felt like my life, my safety or my comfort was important to a single solitary human being. Mm -hmm. 
um, until that moment when it seemed like those things were important to everybody in that space. Even the people that had no idea what was going on. You know, there, as you know, the, the, the D-type that I was playing with, as he was yelling at this person, you know, there were like eight or nine people that were trying to yell with him and they didn't even know what happened. But they were like, oh, they did something to that person. I like that person. And that's not okay. Um, and then there were people that were like, oh, they did something to that person. I don't even know who that person is. But if whatever it was, was non-consensual, don't do that. You know? And so there were all of these people kind of defending me and, and trying to make sure that I was okay. And when I looked up, <clears throat> I just was like in shock, I guess because I'd never really felt like that in a, in a situation or even with people before. And he looked down at me and he said, that, that is leather. That is what leather is. When you are here, you are with family. And when you are with family, you are home. And I will never in my life forget that moment, those people or those words. Um, because to this day, every single time that somebody asks me, what is leather? That's my answer. I, I don't talk about World War II. I don't talk about gay men. I, I don't talk about bondage. I don't talk about heavy. I don't talk about heavy impact play. I don't talk about rough sex. That is what leather is to me. And it may be different from, you know, the millions of other people that do the things, but that's what leather is to me. Such a beautiful story. The first time you realized that the gender that was assigned to you was not the gender that belonged to you. Oh, man. I like to say that I should have known. <laughs> there were so many points in my life that I look at now and, and think, man, I should have figured that out so much sooner. Um, I have heard story after story after story of people, my age group, my, my experience area and, and heard, I've known since I was two years old, I've known since I was five, I've known since I was eight, you know, I figured it out as a teenager and, and me, I didn't know. Um, I knew I was different. I knew I was weird. Um, I knew I didn't fit and I didn't know why. Um, I didn't figure out that it was gender until three years ago. I was 26, 27 um, and I went to funniest story I've ever told in my whole life. I went to a training for Capital One. Huh. I was going to be a credit analyst and, and credit reconciliation human for Capital One. And during their training program, they have an LGBTQ plus inclusion video. During that video, I, I had probably zoned out for a good half of it. Um, being somebody that spent a lot of time in the LGBTQ circles, I'm somebody that's volunteered at Pride for I don't even know how long. 
um, and, you know, partners and friends that were trans. And I identified for a good portion of my life as a lesbian. Like, I don't need to listen to Capital One's version of LGBTQ inclusion. Um, until about halfway through the video, there was a line that the person that was speaking said, and I felt like something carved into my soul. And I had never thought about gender in the way that they said that phrase. So what they said was a person does not have to physically or medically transition to be trans and they do not have to physically or medically transition to be valid. And my hang up for the longest time was maybe I'm a dude and maybe that makes everything make sense, but I don't wanna look different. I don't wanna change the way that I look. And so I was hung up for a really long time. You know, I tried, um, at first I came out as gender fluid um, and I cut my hair off. Um, I mean, I know this isn't video, so you can't see me, but I have super long hair. Um, and when I first cut it all off, I didn't recognize myself in the mirror. I, I've had hair past my waist since I was five years old. I, I've never seen myself without hair in a way that was okay with me. Um, I grew up homeless and, and poor. My mom used to cut our hair off and give us buzz cuts when we got lice. So I was pretty used to like my hair being short, being connected to like something bad happened. Um, <clears throat> I started out when I was a little kid, I did pageantry and modeling. So I've had acrylic nails since I was about nine. Um, I went to the salon and asked them to cut my nails off. And I think the, I think the nail tech looked at me weirder than anybody has ever looked at me in my life. Um, and she asked, have you ever actually seen your natural nails? And I was like, no, I, I don't, I don't remember the last time I saw my natural nails, but, but I, I want to see what I look like in masculine clothing. And I want to see what I look like if I cut my hair and cut my nails and let my beard grow. So we're going to do that. And she was like, and you want me <laughs> to cut your nails? And I was like, yes. And she was like, I'm going to need to ask another nail tech because I can't do that. <laughs> mm. um, you know, the people that cut my hair, they couldn't cut my hair. I had to go to another salon. Um, so I did that. Um, and I, I cut my hair and I cut my nails and, and I could not function for a week. Um, I, everything in my life was vastly different. I, I couldn't open soda cans. I couldn't put my pants on. Um, I kept trying to brush my hair when there was no hair to brush and like just everything bothered me about life. Um, I, I'm a recovering heroin addict. So doing testosterone shots was horrifying to even think about. I was like, there's, there's no way I can't, I can't do that. I can't hold a needle and put it in my body. There's, there's no, I can't do that. Um, and so the more that I thought about it, the more I was like, okay, so I have a heart condition. So elective surgery is really dangerous for me. Um, I mean, necessary surgery is dangerous for me. So I don't want top surgery. I don't want bottom surgery. I don't want hormones. I don't want to cut my hair. I want my long nails. 
I like my tits. I like to dress up in dresses and put on heels. I like to wear makeup and do my hair. I like, I grew up modeling. That's how you make yourself pretty. <laughs> like that's what I'm used to. Um, I have 65 inch hips. That's not suitable for a male's pair of jeans. And there's like, you can't hide those. Um, so I just, you know, I went to Target at one point and tried on male clothing um, and thought I looked ridiculous. And so I, I just quit. I was like, I quit. I don't know. Maybe it's not that, right? Maybe I'm not a guy. Maybe I'm just in between, or maybe I'm non-binary or gender fluid or gender queer or something. Um, until that Capital One training and everything just like clicked in my brain. And so I went home that day. I went home to my slave. My slave is um, somebody that does gender education as well. And so I came in and I just like burst through the door and I was like, I have a question. Like, oh Jesus, what, what is the question? And I said, can you be trans if you don't want to have surgery or take hormones? And it just looked at me and was like, yeah, <laughs> like I was stupid. <laughs> Wait, but okay. So then let me ask you this. <laughs> Do you think I am trans? And it was like, I'm not going to tell you what I think your gender is. I think you need to make that like discovery on your own. So I immediately picked up the phone and I called my best friend and I said, I figured it out. I'm a dude. I've, I've, I, everything makes so much more sense. I'm a guy. And there was silence on the other end of the phone for a good 20 seconds before finally he replied, you just got that. <laughs> and then I got that response from every other person that I came out to save for like three people that really wanted to have sex with me like <laughs> but like every other person was like yeah duh or that makes a lot more sense <laughs> it's like man I wish somebody would have told me that a few years ago that would have made my life a lot easier you brought it up in the answer, so I will ask this question. Uh -huh. First time you realized that heroin wasn't the answer. My relationship with heroin is very complicated. Um, I actually did not choose the first time that I was given heroin. Um, I was in a very abusive situation. I was... Um, let me give some content and trigger warnings before I go into that explanation, uh, child abuse, um, and bad parenting. <sighs> um, there may be more than that, but just in case, um, my, my mother, um, really liked when I was quiet and compliant for her boyfriends. Um, so I was given heroin to stay quiet. Um, <clears throat> I became addicted. Um, I probably, the first time that I was ever given heroin, I was seven. I became addicted by the time I was nine um, in a relationship with a human that eventually became my husband. Um, we had a conversation about my drug use and he did not like it. Um, he, he didn't like that I was using. Um, I told him that there were some things that I was doing for fun and some things that I was doing because I had learned how to function with that stuff. And then some things that I couldn't stop. Um, 
heroin being one of the things that I couldn't stop. And through that conversation, he basically told me that if I was still using that he would end our relationship and that we, we wouldn't get married at the time we were talking about getting married. And I was very excited about doing that. Um, so he told me that if I couldn't kick the habit, that I couldn't get married to him um, and therefore could not leave my abusive father. Mm. So I became intrinsically motivated <laughs> to stop using. Um, I requested that he locked me in a closet. Um, and so I stayed in that closet for a little under two weeks. Um, wow. And I, I suffered heroin withdrawals by myself in a closet. Um, I got to hang out um, in, in a closet in Texas <laughs> um, and uh, living in my own filth and all of the things that come with withdrawal um, until I felt better. And when I felt better, I knocked on the door and he wasn't there at the time. So I waited and then knocked on the door a couple hours later <laughs> and then knocked on the door a couple hours later. And eventually when I knocked on the door, he was there um, and he let me out and got me cleaned up and stuff. And uh, I have relapsed once mm -hmm. um, since that. And that was in the middle of 2006. I was 16. So that is, that is my relationship with heroin in a nutshell. <laughs> Such a powerful story. And in asking the question, I did not mean to be insensitive because usually you think that people who would be hooked on heroin that it might have been something that they had tried, but to hear that it was something that was done to you is unimaginable to me. I get that. That's just- I'm, mm. I am the kind of person that, that just about anything you wanna know is on the table. Um, and it doesn't bother me to talk about almost anything to do with my stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm an open book and you didn't offend or upset me at all. Then I will ask just a really fun fifth question, which is always our traditional fifth question. Ooh. First time you ever received a dick pic and your reaction to it. Uh, <laughs> here's another fun one. I have never received a picture of a dick that I did not request. <laughs> That's a first answer that we've had of that type. <laughs> I don't know how. I don't know why. <laughs> I, I sometimes I feel very left out. <laughs> um, but I, I hear stories all the time about, you know, people that receive, especially some of my femme friends that receive unsolicited dick pics and like, you know, tell me what to do, mommy, or 
um, like on the submissive side, I used to hear people say all the time, like, you know, that they got people in their inbox, like degrading and humiliating them over like FET message or Facebook message or, you know, in, in kick or, or OKC or whatever that dating thing is. Mm -hmm. And I've never had that experience. Um, I've had some like strange, I got a really weird one, one time, um, it was a, a guy that wanted to know what I would do if he was small enough to fit in my pocket. And if one day he just <laughs> appeared in my pocket, what I would do with him. Um, but that's the closest to like weird or unsolicited that I've gotten. Amazing. I, I, people tell me that I don't get them because I'm intimidating, but I don't think you can tell that from just like seeing my profile. And I think that that's what causes those messages to happen is like somebody sees somebody profile and they're like, haha, that person. But nope, no, no fun here. I don't, I don't get the dick pics or the, the unsolicited solicitations. <laughs> I sometimes wish I could. <laughs> I it sounds kind of fun. I have friends that like they get those messages and they have like, you know, they they have like petty retorts, and and they they can you know th throw back some some verbal backlash like, hey motherfucker, and like that sounds like fun to me. I would like to do that one time, but alas, no unsolicited messages. Hi. This is Rachel Leadham, aka The Conscious Masochist. I'm an author and sadomasochism integration mentor who encourages the mindful exploration of your dark side. I offer astrological birth chart readings to interpret your sadomasochistic blueprint through the clues found within your chart. You can learn more about my work, including the ebook Conscious Masochism, at my website, www.rachelleadham.com. And join us on Instagram at The Conscious Masochist. And be sure to check out my episode in the archives of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Realizing that you're polyamorous can be a wonderful insight. The Polyamory Dating Guide is a book about finding other people who share your view of polyamory and want to share it with you. This book includes a variety of sections on poly-specific dating, such as navigating online dating with a review of poly-specific dating sites and how to make a profile that works. Real-time dating tips that will tell you where to find polyam people and how to make a positive impression, how to date as an existing couple, and if you should, dating as an introvert, queer in dating, and lots more. Get your copy at polyamorydatingguide.com. Hi, this is Jane Boone, the author of the novel Edge Play. It's a revenge fantasy where the big short meets Fifty Shades of Grey. Only the women wield the whips and the billionaires submit. You can find it at Amazon in paperback or for your Kindle. And be sure to check out my episode with Tara Indiana right here on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Thank you. Are you liking what you're hearing? Check out the Total Archives wherever you find your podcasts. And please remember to subscribe so you don't miss a minute. And while you're there, help John out by giving him a rating and review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's get back to what women and other wonderful humans want. Devin and I first met each other when I was the host of one of their workshops with Dating Kinky. 
and I got to hear very much about power exchange. When did you become interested in power exchange and what was it that led you there? Oh, huh, huh. Um, <laughs> I started my first <clears throat> foray into power exchange relationships in 2004. Um, for those of you keeping track, I was 14 years old at the time. Um, so I was under the age of consent. Um, someone at my high school was a mutual friend of another friend that I had. And at one point in the hallway, he walked up to me and pointed at me and said, you're my slave now. Um, <laughs> and I said, okay. <laughs> um, we began slave trading. Um, and eventually he was my, he was my owner and master for seven years um, until I was, I think, 21 or 20 or 21. Um, and uh, in that relationship, part of the reason that, you know, my, like, I know that that relationship was not ethical um, for a lot of reasons, but not the reasons that people think it is. Um, my first owner, um, I think he physically touched me once in order to give me a hug to console me when I was sad because my cat died. Um, but other than that, I don't remember a time that he physically touched me. Um, we didn't have sex. We didn't do any SM activities. Um, our relationship was very specifically protocol and training driven. Um, so he helped me create a sense of stability and boundaries for myself. Um, I wasn't allowed to eat things that, that like were bad for me. Um, I wasn't allowed to, um, stay up super late and stuff like that. So, um, he, he kind of helped me manage my high school years. Um, I was very heavily abused as, as a child. Um, so my teenage years were really difficult. Um, I didn't make friends very well. I didn't, I wasn't able to talk for the most part. Um, I couldn't stand up for myself at all. Um, nothing that I, I didn't, I couldn't tell you my favorite movie. I couldn't tell you whether or not I liked the food I was eating. Um, I was just in a really, really bad place as a teenager. Um, and as much as I would never recommend somebody getting into that style of relationship before they're able to consent, um, I wasn't able to emotionally consent until I was about 26. Um, and that's like just my life experience stuff getting in the way of those things. Um, but, um, I did learn how to say no in that relationship. Um, even if it wasn't because I wanted to say no, it was because somebody told me to say no, but I learned how to say no. Um, I, I learned how to wake up to an alarm clock. Um, I learned how to, um, kind of get ready for bed in, in a way that was conducive to actually waking up on time. Um, I learned a lot of things about life and people. Um, what I didn't learn was that there were other people that did the things that I was doing. Um, and I figured out why once I found community, um, I was still collared when I found the in-person community. And when I explained all of the cool things that I discovered, um, he told me he knew about those things. He knew that those things were available. 
Um, he knew we could go to munges and parties and conferences and all of that stuff, but I didn't get to go because I was underage. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that I couldn't go now is because we were long distance at that time. Um, so he was like, I would take you to the places now that you're old enough, but you know, you're not here. And so I can't take you. And I was like, well, you could have told me when I turned 18 to go find this stuff, but you know, I didn't know about it until I was almost 21. Um, so yeah, my, my first, uh, adventures in, in power exchange are also weird <laughs> and different. I think for most people, it's like, well, my, my girlfriend tied me up one night or, you know, I saw a kinky porn. And for me, it's like somebody walked up to me my freshman year in high school and was like, you're my slave now. So that's, uh, that's how I got started. <laughs> that's definitely not where I ended up, but that's where I started. From the answers you gave to the first five, and the answer you just gave, I really want to delve into the answer to this question. Hmm. When was the first time you felt loved? Oh. I, I struggled for a very long time with love. Um, I, I misconstrued, and, and a lot of this is like recent work. Um, me, me, and, me and Suzanne, um, she's she my therapist. Um, we have a lot of really interesting conversations about what I thought things were and what they actually were. Uh, one, of the, one of the biggest things that we worked on in the beginning was I thought love was codependency. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and so I didn't realize until about two years ago that what I felt for the first love of my life was codependency and not love. Um, so the more that I kind of unpacked that, because had you asked me that question probably five years ago, I would have told you I felt love the first time I laid eyes on my first girlfriend when I was 14. That's not true. That was not love. Um, the first time that I felt love, duh, with a D, um, the first time I kissed my property, we were at a friend's house and I had a cigar and I put the cigar out on its hand and I squished its hands together and its hands were burning and my property is not a masochist. So it was not having fun. Um, it would really have liked for that to stop. (laughs) Um, and I held its hands together and I kissed it on the mouth and I held it there and it didn't move. Even though every ounce of its energy was like, I hate all of this and I really wish this would stop. Um, but as soon as I kissed it, it, it was like, that was gone. It was like, it couldn't even feel that anymore. Like it didn't even matter that that's what was happening. Um, I didn't know what it felt like to feel loved until somebody was willing to sacrifice for me because I spent the better part of my entire life, not my childhood, not my teenage years, not my early adulthood, but the better part of my entire life, (laughs) um, sacrificing for other people and doing things for other people, um, to make them happy specifically, 
Um, not because I enjoyed it, not because I had fun, um, not because I had a service heart, um, not because I had a slave heart, um, but because people liked it when I did the things that they told me to do. And so I did that for a very long time. And the moment that I stopped thinking from that place and feeling from that place, the moment that somebody else was willing to actually sacrifice for my happiness was the first time I ever felt loved. You wear a tattoo on your arm that I suspect the first part of it was the semicolon. And then oh, my you built warrior? around it. Was the semicolon there before the rest of the word warrior? No. That is actually one piece that was done at the same time. Explain that to our audience who may not understand what the semicolon is and the meaning of warrior. Absolutely. So I, I, um, so the entire piece is actually on both of my arms. Um, the first one is, is the warrior, which everybody always sees first. Um, so it's warrior spelled out, but instead of an I, there's a semicolon. And on my other forearm is my, my Spartan um, with sword drawn. Um, for me, what warrior means to me is I have surpassed every place that I got stuck. Um, in my process of, of healing and, and my, my journey of, of becoming a person is what I like to call it. Um, I survived for a little while. Um, I thrived for a little while, um, and I have surpassed those places in myself. Um, I am at a place now where I can face somewhere around 80% of my triggers without any reaction. Um, not because they don't bother me anymore, but because they don't have power over me anymore. Um, the people in my life that have treated me the way that they treated me to get me to that place. Those people don't have power anymore. Um, so I call myself a warrior um, because I am somebody that has had to claw my way to safety um, and had to claw my way to a personality and to happiness. Um, the reason that there is a semicolon instead of an I um, as to a symbolize the fact that I was not an I for a very long time. Mm. So my I was missing. Um, and I chose to put a semicolon there um, because the semicolon is a symbol of solidarity for folks that have um, brushed against suicide or suicidal ideation. Um, so the, the whole thing goes that a semicolon is a place where an author could have stopped writing the story, but decided to continue. Um, and so that's what my semicolon means. Um, and it's stuck in the center of my warrior because my eye was missing. Hi, my name is Leanne and I am the owner of Polyphilia, where you can get your daily fix of memes dedicated to polyamory, ethical non-monogamy, and personal growth in open relationships. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Polyphilia Blog. 
spelt P-O-L-Y-P-H-I-L-I-A-B-L-O-G. I hope to see you there, and please also check out my episode on what women and other wonderful humans want. Hello, I'm Jessie Sage from Peep Show Media. Peep Show Media is a multimedia magazine bringing news and stories from the sex industry. Be sure to check out our website at peepshowmedia.com for essays, porn reviews, events, interviews, news stories, and more. Also, make sure to listen to our podcast, The Peep Show Podcast, anywhere you get podcasts. And for a bit more of a personal glance into my life, make sure to check out my January 15th interview on what women and other wonderful humans want. Do you want to leave us a comment, thought, or have something to contribute to the show? You can now call or text us at the 3W hotline at 513-788-2527. That's 513-788-2527. Or drop us an email at john, J-O-N, at datingkinky.com. That's john, J-O-N, at datingkinky.com. We can't wait to hear from you. Before the break, we were talking about the fact that an author could have stopped writing and continued the story. Interestingly enough, you became the author writing new stories and writing reference guides for people in power exchange relationships uh, in understanding gender, so many of these wonderful quick reference guides. Where did the genesis of this idea come from? And what have been some of the highlights that you really enjoyed in writing those? <laughs> um, it is kind of funny that I wound up being the author. Um, I, I never thought of myself as somebody that was going to write a book. Um, I, I so rarely see nonfiction kink books that I vibe with that there are a handful of people that I really, that I follow that do those things. Um, but I never saw myself as somebody that could hang out in that circle of humans. Um, so I'm a really big fan of people like Lee Harrington and, uh, Raven Caldera um, and there's, you know, when, when I read a, a book by Dr. Bob, I don't think to myself, I could do that, <laughs> right? That is not, that is not part of my thought process and has never been part of my thought process. Um, so why did I start writing the books? Um, I taught a class at a power exchange conference in 2019, I think. Um, and during the class, I was throwing out just a preposterous amount of information. Um, I was throwing out terms and concepts and phrases and words that so many people in that space had never thought about. Um, that somebody in the back of the room raised their hand. And when I called on them to speak, he said, you should put this in a book and sell it. And I laughed because I thought that was the dumbest idea anybody ever had. I was like, nobody would ever buy that book. Um, but I'll keep that in mind. 
and I kind of like brushed it off as a joke. Well, a few days later, I was sitting with my class material and I thought to myself, how many times has somebody asked me to give them the list of things that I negotiate in a relationship? And because the list is so vast and it's so varied and it's so long, maybe I should put it in like a little mini, I don't want to say the B word, but like maybe it's a book. (laughs) (laughs) And what ended up happening was I I took that idea from that particular class and I said, I don't want to write that book yet. Um, What I want to do is I want to put together um, the material that I'm the most passionate about and the material that I know the best and the material that I'm most confident in. So I want to put that in a book. Um, and I talked to four or five people and I researched and, and watched YouTube videos and all sorts of stuff before I finally figured out how to do that. <laughs> um, and finally put it all into a book and self-published it on Amazon um, and called it a quick reference guide to the areas of control. And was like, ta-da, I made a book. Um, I had no idea <laughs> that when that book came out, that people were going to talk about it. And now that was the first book in the series. Now the series is complete. There's six, six quick reference guides. Um, but when I first published that book, it was really so that I could buy it and hand it to people. Um, and, and then a lot of people wanted it and then I couldn't afford that many copies. <laughs> And so I made it available for public consumption um, because holy shit, um, I I didn't realize that it would be anything to anybody else. You know, I wanted something that was clear and concrete that I didn't have to go to FedEx and get 20 pages of paper printed out for every person that asked. Mm -hmm. Like that's what I, that, that was my goal. Um, And then, you know, a year later or six months later, I had people telling me that they negotiated their relationships using that book. (laughs) And I was like blown away. I had no idea that that's a thing that people were going to do with that book. Um, Meanwhile, I was publishing the rest of the series. (laughs) So I was like, man, I really hope that like, I don't get too much more of this because that's, I don't even know how to react to that. Um, And then I got more of that. So it was a, it was an interesting time. Um, the, the quick reference series took me, um, I released, I released the books kind of a couple of months apart. So I released them over a year's period of time. Um, and then in the meanwhile, remember I said, I never wanted to write a book and I never thought about writing a book in the meantime, basically the whole time I've been in the King community, I've been slowly putting together a cigar book. Um, and eventually I, couldn't figure out how to do all the photos because I wanted to do a more diverse photo array. Um, but I am only my stuff. (laughs) Um, so I couldn't diversify with just me. Um, so I put out a call to the community and said, Hey, I've got this book that's finished, but I don't want to put it out there without photos. And I want, I want diverse photos. And so the community actually contributed enough photos to turn that into a book. and, And I published it the next year. And I want you to tell our audience what the name of that book is, because it just makes me smile. (laughs) Uh, The name of the cigar book is Damn, That's a Nice Ash. (laughs) 
It was my, it was my slogan when I was uh, serving cigars and it's stuck for a very long time. Um, I, I, for, for those of you that have never seen me in person, nor can see me and can see me now, um, I have a very large rear end. Um, and so when <laughs> I would go into places, I would have to like turn sideways and like wiggle my way into and out of places because my butt is very large. Um, and I used to get the comment all the time that I had a nice ass. And when I started serving, I started making ash puns out of almost everything. Um, so I was, you know, I would say that somebody that dumped their ash on the floor when they knew there was somebody that was into ash was an ash hole. Um, <laughs> and so I was like making all these puns. And the, the next time that somebody commented on my ass, I was like, hey, don't insult me. It's not an ass. That's my ash. Um, <laughs> and so it stuck and it actually ended up being the backs of the t-shirts that my leather club wore for a long time when we were serving cigars um so it just always said damn that's a nice ash right above their asses which i thought was really funny where did you develop such a love for teaching because i just from hosting that one workshop with you I was just amazed at how many people say, Devin Stone's teaching. You've got to see them teach. <laughs> it's amazing. Devin Stone's doing another class. I'm going to sign up. I mean, I'm hearing this from everywhere. It's like you're the rock star of teaching. Like, I'm over here like laughing and, and blushing. Um, First of all, don't inflate my ego. I don't need any help. <laughs> I'll get too big for the planet. It's, it's a whole situation. Um, I, for a really long time, when I was a teenager, I wanted really badly to grow up and be Michelle Pfeiffer from Dangerous Minds. Like mm -hmm. that was my whole, <laughs> that was my whole career goal was like, I'm going to go to places where kids don't feel loved and don't get attention and don't get somebody to believe in them. And I'm going to go be those things. Um, unfortunately for me, my upbringing and my early adulthood um, led to a pretty significant case of pedophobia. So I actually can't stand to be in the same space as people that are anywhere under the age of like 16. Hmm. Um, I can kind of be comfortable around older teenagers, um, but anything that, that like even remotely speaks to like might possibly be a child, I have a very hard time being around. Um, so my, my dreams of, you know, being a middle school or a high school teacher were kind of out. Um, and, and I couldn't really figure out what I wanted to do with my life. So for a long time, I just kind of philandered around and, and flopped into things that I happened to be okay at. <laughs> um, I was a credit analyst for Experian for a long time. Um, I was a customer service agent on the phone. Hi, would you like to switch to AT&T? Um, <laughs> I did, I did a bunch of random stuff um, to make money. And I hated basically all of it um, until I started going to dungeons and conferences on a regular basis that I loved. Um, 
I loved being able to go to events and I loved being able to hang out at my local dungeon and, you know, refill the fridge and take out the trash and, and help, you know, people find stations to play on and stuff like that. I had a really good time in those spaces. Um, when I started going to conferences on a regular basis, I started going to classes at conferences. I, I really enjoyed that you could take what feel like university level classes on some of these topics that we're just into. Um, and there are some people that have really dedicated themselves to that practice of teaching other people. And I thought that that was just the coolest thing ever. Um, however, at the time, I just thought that was cool. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any, in, I didn't have any desire to do any of those things myself. I thought that was just kind of a cool thing that you could do. And I was learning so much that I had, you know, stacks of notebooks filled with notes. And I thought that was great. Um, I started when I was serving cigars, I started helping people learn how to do cigar service, um, kind of as almost a community service. So I would show up to cigar socials a couple hours early and meet with the servers and give them basic cigar service 101. Like these are the things that you need to know kind of instructionals. Um, eventually people started asking me questions about my relationships and how I was negotiating because people figured out that I was different. Um, I am very analytical about my kink. I am very type A and organized. I am not, um, I'm like, they, they call me anti-woo in some circles. Um, I'm almost anti-intimacy. I am all about like the strong, hard numbers and the agreements and the conversations. And like, I don't give a fuck what feels good. If you don't like it intrinsically, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I don't, I don't care if it feels nice. I want you to say yes. <laughs> um, uh, so I don't, I don't do the, you know, go with the flow stuff. And I, I don't do the, let's just see what feels good. Um, I have very analytical conversations about everything I do in kink. And so I eventually had people asking me questions about like how I did that and what kind of things I talked about and what kind of information I asked for and how I was building the things that I was doing. And I thought that it was really cool that people were interested in that stuff. And so I would have hours long conversations sometimes with people answering questions and, and just talking about my processes and stuff. Eventually I went to a MS intensive in, I think it was Missouri. And I met a person um, that I had really, really enjoyed for a long time from afar um, and thought like, man, I wanna like, I wanna do that. And my property kind of looked over at me and was like, what do you, what do you mean do that? And I was like, what, what that person is doing, you know, they, they like, they travel and they teach and they just, they just help people. Like, that's, that's what I want to do with my life. And it was like, you want to be that person? And I was like, yeah, I want, I want to, I want to go places and I want to teach classes. And I, I want to do stuff. Um, and I had tried at that point in my journey, I had been trying for a while to get a teaching position at smaller events or a couple of the local conferences that I had frequented. And I was told I was too young. I was told I didn't have enough experience. I was told I didn't have anything important to say. 
I was told that my ideas were not in, were not different or unique. Um, I was told a lot of things that basically equated to no. Mm-hmm. Um, so I eventually, during a roundtable at that event, I talked to that human and said, hey, what do you suggest to someone that wants to do what you do, but keeps being told no? Like I've, I've tried to, to do like small munches and small dungeon parties and, and stuff. And they just tell me no. So like, what, what do you think I should do? And that human said, I think you should email me your class list is what I think you should do. Um, because I know people all over the place and somebody would gladly take you and give you a shot. And I was like, okay, cool. Um, Nothing ever actually came out of that conversation, weirdly Mm. enough. Um, But for me, it was the kick in the ass that I needed to really start putting myself out there. So instead of just sending in an application every few months, what I started doing was reaching out to people that I knew produced events and said, hey, I want to do a thing at your event. Will you let me? Um, Instead of waiting for applications, Mm -hmm. I I started like actually beating down doors, being like, hey, I want to do these things. Um, At a cigar social, I I heard somebody over, over, I kind of overheard somebody talking about teaching the cigar class at Oklahoma Leatherfest and how they were looking for somebody else to do it, but they would do it again that year if they had to wasn't that big of a deal either way. And so my brain saw this like potential opening. And so I ran up to the person. I was like, hi, excuse me. I would love to teach that class. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't know when Oklahoma Leatherfest is, um, but, but I would love to teach that class. I'm pretty sure it's in Oklahoma. Um, but, uh, I I don't know when it is. I don't know how much it costs. I I don't know, like, but, but I want to do that. And he looked at me and he was like, it's, it's in two weeks. And I was like, okay, <laughs> uh, I don't think I have the money to go to Oklahoma in two weeks, uh, but I will figure that out and I, I will do it. Um, and so I went home and I talked to the slave and I was like, listen, I'm going to do this thing. How are we going to make this happen? Like, which of your kidneys do we need to sell? Cause I'm going to go do this thing. Cause they just told me yes. Mm-hmm. And there's no way it's not happening. Um, so we, we figured it out and we moved some money around, pulled some stuff out of savings. Um, we were late on two bills that month. <laughs> um, but I made the gas money and the hotel money to go up to OKLF. And I taught my first class at a conference. Um, and when I got done with that class, I had eight people approach me through the rest of the weekend, asking me what else I taught and how far I was willing to travel and all of these things that I had never even considered before. I had no answers to any of those questions. I, <laughs> um, but eventually, you know, I had people that were asking, come teach at my dungeon, come teach at my conference, come teach at my event. Um, and so I put together a better bio um, and I put together a better class list um, And I I started doing a handful of things and eventually it just was like an avalanche of sorts. Mm -hmm. I think I I did, you know, the first year I did stuff, I probably taught four or five classes at four or five different events. 
And then all of a sudden the next year, it was just like somebody sent me to outer space. Um, and that was 2019. Um, and since then I've taught almost a hundred workshops and I've published seven, technically eight books. One of them is privately published. Um, and I've just been nonstop. Um, I decided to make it a full-time career when I had to turn down a teaching opportunity because of work. Um, so I looked at the slave and I said, that's not going to do for me. Um, I, I don't like the fact that finally people are giving me the opportunity to teach and I have, I have to turn this down because work won't let me have off that weekend. And so I told the slave, you have to fix that. Um, and so the slave's option was to go get a second job um, so that I could quit my full-time job and now I can do this. Um, so this is my full-time, sometimes 20 hours a week, sometimes 80 hours a week job. <laughs> I, I wake up and do this every day and I would not change it for all the money or all the riches or all the blowjobs in the world. I think we could wrap it up by saying Devin Stone is kicking ash. <laughs> All over the place. Please tell us where we can connect with you. Um, you can always find almost anything you want to know about me at devinstone.com. My name is spelled weird. It's D-E-V-Y-N-S-T-O-N-E.com. Um, what do I have coming up? I don't know. Uh, lots of stuff. Um, I'm teaching a handful of classes almost every month. Um, the one that I'm really excited about is August 14th. Um, August 14th is my BDSM educator primer. It's an eight hour intensive where I'm going to tell you everything about how I do this full time. Um, so I'm going to talk, I'm going to talk about bios and class lists and how to manage and how to negotiate as an educator and how to maintain your boundaries as an educator. Um, but also how to write classes and how to market and how to self-publish and almost everything you want to know about being a BDSM educator. Um, tickets start at, I think $35. Um, and it's, it's eight hours. <laughs> it is eight hours. Um, and it's going to be a blasty blast. Devin, we have just scratched the surface here. We haven't even talked about the things that you teach. We talked about what brought you here. So I am going to extend the invitation in the next couple of months to do a part two of this. And we can talk about the different things that you teach. I want to talk about your property and how that relationship has happened and how it grows. I find you utterly fascinating and it has been an absolute honor to have you on the show. I have really enjoyed this and I would definitely look forward to a part two. We can absolutely do that. An insightful interview, the likes of which we haven't had on the show. And I greatly appreciate Devin's time and passion to what he does. 
Next week, we are joined by a pair of amazing doms. It's D20 Dom and Miss Melody Pond for a wonderful discussion on power dynamics and just being plain awesome. And that will do it for this episode of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, as well as bring to a close our first season. And I can't think of a better way to have done so. We will be back in September with a brand new season two, which includes some amazing guests, some new types of shows that we've never done before, and all the interviews that you have come to enjoy. I can't thank you for your support so much, but as we start to come out of the pandemic a bit, I'm going to go play a little bit and enjoy myself and try to become my own authentic self. We will be back in September with a brand new season two, which includes some amazing guests, some new types of shows that we've never done before, and all the interviews that you have come to enjoy. I can't thank you for your support so much, but as we start to come out of the pandemic a bit, I'm gonna go play a little bit and enjoy myself and try to become my own authentic self. So I can't to wait. So I can't wait to see all of you again for season two coming in September. Stay tuned to Instagram and Twitter for all the details. I'm John, proudly known as Hi There Katsu, thanking you for being with us. I hope I've earned the privilege of your time and I remind you to always remember consent and to love each other always. What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want connects with you. Check us out at What Women Want P1 on Twitter, What Women Want Podcast on Instagram, and for our kinky friends on FetLife at WWW Podcast. This has been a presentation of Dating Kinky. We're kinky done differently.